News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We seem to be a bit of a stalemate in Ottawa with what's left of the protesters today. While a lot of the attention seems to have shifted to what's going on at the Ambassador Bridge and how that is impacting the economy. But let's check in on the Ottawa situation now. Joining us is Rachel Gilmore, a global national online journalist. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you. How are things in Ottawa? What's it like there today? I have to say it is very nice this morning to wake up only to the usual sounds of downtown Ottawa construction <laughs> as opposed to any honking of horns. So the uh, injunction that's in place is definitely having an impact in terms of the noise levels. But if you walk right, you know, sort of in front of Parliament Hill, that's where you'll see that the protesters have really dug in. They're still there. They're still camped out. Um, and they're also kind of spreading across the city in smaller encampments. Okay, so what is the what's the atmosphere like, would you say? Uh, I think, honestly, people are starting to get a little bit fed up, you know, whether it be residents or the protesters. Uh, you know, some of them have been camped out for almost two weeks now. Um, I can't imagine it's the most luxurious living, uh, camping out in a truck on, uh, you know, Wellington Street in February. Um, so people, I think, are getting frustrated. They want their demands to be heard, but the government's refusing to negotiate with them. So, um, you know, things are kind of getting tired, they're getting grumpy, and they're getting a little tense. Okay, so what are the next steps here? What is the attitude that police are now saying? So the police are slowly sort of ramping up their efforts. I mean, we've seen a huge jump in terms of just ticketing even, you know, more than 1,300 tickets were issued for traffic violations in the last little while, 23 arrests, it's got 85 active criminal investigations related to the protest. So they are starting to act. Um, but we've also seen some warnings from the police in the last couple of days that really are painting a picture for how things might escalate. They sent out a warning to protesters yesterday that uh, they can be arrested for blockading the streets or for assisting in a blockade of the streets. Now, it's unclear whether that's them signaling an intention that they might uh, file an injunction of their own on top of the one that's been uh, you know, put in place or pursued by citizens. But um, either way, the police is making it clear that they plan to sort of ramp up their efforts to, uh, to quash this protest. Okay, and what about the protesters themselves? You you mentioned that even they seem to be getting a little bit frustrated. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's uh, there's frustration because their demands are being met, but there's also a really um, there's a lot of confusion about who is actually running this thing. I mean, I, I tuned into a Facebook Live that was a press conference with some of the. Uh, sort of self-proclaimed organizers, and we've seen those names shift a lot over the course of the yeah. last couple of weeks. But, um, you know, the, the press conference I watched, half of it was uh, there was a guy talking about Bitcoin <laughs> and, uh, you know, telling everyone how it's a really good thing to invest in. And a lot of the people in the Facebook Live were confused saying, hey, why are we talking about Bitcoin? I thought this was about mandates and truckers. So, you know, that sort of exemplifies how we've seen the the uh, discourse around this protest shift and, you know, become more and more foggy, which also contributes to the stalemate, right? Because if protesters aren't clear in what they want, that makes it harder for governments to negotiate, although they haven't signaled much of a willingness to do that either. But it's difficult to negotiate with a uh, demonstration whose actual desired outcome is unclear. 
Okay, so, but they don't seem like they're going anywhere at this point. No, and, you know, even more so, they're actually starting to fan out across the city. We're seeing some secondary encampments crop up in, a new, you know, new neighborhoods that were otherwise fairly untouched. So we'll probably start to see some more Ottawa residents feel uh, touched by this protest. Um, you know, as I mentioned previously to you um, in uh, other times I've chatted with you, we've seen tr- some trucks take off their wheels. You know, a lot of yeah. them are really dug in. Um, so I'm not really sure how this will end because without negotiations looming, without a clear sort of ability for the police to move things without some kind of a conflict, it it's really just unclear how things are going to go in the next little while. All right, Rachel, thank you very much for the update. Thanks. This is Rachel Gilmore, Global National's online journalist, talking about the situation in Ottawa today. There will be more updates on that. I know there's a lot of focus on what's happening at the Ambassador Bridge, too, which has, by the way, impacted auto production in southern Ontario, Ford plants, GM plants. The Ford plant in Windsor, in particular, has had a real slowdown because uh, they just can't get the parts. They can't get you know goods moving back and forth across the border. That's going to have a huge impact in southern Ontario. So I would imagine something is going to get done sooner rather than later with that particular protest. Let's talk about what's happening in the community of Lytton. You can't quite get away from those images of Lytton over the summer after the wildfire devastated that community. It just about burned up the whole town. And then, of course, we had the flooding situation as well. It has been an horrific year for people who call Lytton home. And they have been waiting for help. Waiting and waiting, it feels like. Till yesterday, they heard the BC government will be, will be providing the village of Lytton with $8.3 million to support its operations and recovery. So where is this going to go? And is it enough? Joining us now is Jan Polderman, who is the mayor of Lytton. Thank you very much for being here. Hello. That must have been pretty frustrating, waiting for this money to come through. What's it been like? Well, um, it has been very frustrating. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's been a very difficult process as Lytton doesn't fit the regular funding models. And why is that? Well, just the sheer, um, you know, my, how do you say that, the total devastation of the town. Very few places have been as totally devastated as Lytton. It's kind of hard to fill in an application for something that hardly ever happens. Right. Um, you know, the the village has very little land that ha- that hasn't been affected by the, the fire, so even setting up something uh, like temporary housing means that you would have to go out and lease land, you know, from private owners. I mean, that's just, you know, one aspect of it and and then you know how do you provide you know the necessities of life to to the you know to that uh, to those properties as well right mayor polderman what is it like right now in lytton has any kind of work being been done on getting things ready for rebuilding well we waited um you know you know for near three months for the toxicology reports came out we spent about six weeks, and basically all the properties was uh, were sifted, and then um, we ran into the roadblock that um, Lytton's a historical site, and as a result, all the homeowners uh, needed to get a permit, an archaeological permit. Um, the 14th of November, the roads washed out, both north and south of town. Um, 
after that, we got three feet of snow. And oh boy. As, a, as of, you know, a, a few days ago, the, the town site uh, finally uh, reappeared. Oh, boy. Okay. So it's been six months there, that's for sure. So, Mayor Polderman, this money that was announced yesterday, is that enough to help? Well, it's a start, and the government, you know, has basically provided this funding so the village can operate and, you know, and pay the bills from the uh, from the disaster. Uh, we have about uh, $2 million of outstanding bills. Uh, about $2 million of that is going to go to keeping the village running for the next three years. And, of course, you know, on $8 million, you pay $400,000 worth of GST. So just, you know, you know that's just some of the numbers. And, um, you know, we've had a very dedicated team, uh, you know, of uh, people like Tara Fagnolo, Darlene Clark, and Julia Wama, who are helping us to navigate the funding system so we can get our funding requests. Right. So you hope there's there's more coming. Oh, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, the, the province, you know, has said that this is, you know, is just the start. It's to keep the, you know, the village functioning. So what happens next? And what are the, you said that finally the town has reappeared after, you know, three feet of snow and roads. What happens yeah. in the next few weeks? Well, the permitting process, um, you know, um, you know, on the village's side is, is, in, is in place. Um, and we're expecting the debris removal to begin at the beginning of March. Um, you know, that's complicated by the fact that it has been deemed toxic. So what do you, you do? Know? Yeah, how do you move forward from that? Well, well, I mean, you have to find the dump sites that'll take the, you know, the toxic waste. Um, that adds about 400% to the cost of where, you know, the debris oh, wow. removal. And of course, you know, your insurance companies claim that it's not their responsibility. Then you also have the fact that you have a large number of uninsured people. So, you know, the, the, you know, the aim is, is that once this debris removal starts at the beginning of March, that it, the entire town is cleaned up, not 40%, not 30%. What is your take, though, on the rebuilding process? I mean, given everything that's happened, is it wise to rebuild the way it was before, or is there any thought being put into how this rebuild is going to happen? Well, um, last night we introduced a new building bylaw that uh, was reviewed by the catastrophic loss um, people. Um, and, you know, we have brought in a bylaw that has fire resiliency measures in it, like, you know, um, non-combustible uh, softening, siding. Um, the other bylaw is, is you, know, uh, you know, the shrubbery and trees that you can plant around right. your house, you know, that type of thing. Right. So you're taking, you're mitigate, you're trying to mitigate this as you move, right. as you, you do this. Okay. So there will be new rules, perhaps, that, that homeowner, potential homeowners will have to follow. Yes. Okay. Um, but of course, you know, that'll add cost to their build and, you know, uh, you know, that, um, you know, you know, is another problem. So, you know, like you think you solve one problem and then you've created another. That certainly seems like what's happened in Lytton over the last year. Uh, Mayor Polderman, thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate that. Thank you.
That is Jan Polderman, who is the mayor of Lytton, talking about the first step in the rebuilding process, which happened yesterday with the announcement that the BC government will provide the village of Lytton with about $8.3 million. That's just to support the village of Lytton's operations over the next few years and to start the recovery process. But they have to uh, address the water and wastewater system, some legal issues, debris removal, environmental and archaeological remediation. This is just the very beginning of what it's going to take to get Lytton back on its feet. Now, some of BC's health restrictions around indoor events and gatherings are set to expire next week, February the 16th. We will find out before that, though, whether or not they're going to be renewed or whether they will just let them expire. That's what Dr. Bonnie Henry told us yesterday. So we asked you this morning if you're feeling ready to return to normal. And this is what one caller to our buzz line had to say. Uh, Definitely not ready for things to go back to normal. Um, If we were, you know, locked up, Way back in 2019, uh, we're in a way worse position now than we are then. The hospitals are way more full. Uh, fully vaccinated people are also getting hospitalized. Okay, so there's somebody who says they're not ready to go back to normal. How about you? You can drop me an email or call our buzz line. Meanwhile, next door in Alberta, we know that they are definitely heavily underway in removing as many restrictions as possible. But not all people in Alberta are happy about it either. Joining us now is Tom Vernon, our Global News Edmonton Provincial Affairs reporter. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being here. So what has the mood been like in Alberta then since... Premier Kenny announced all of this. You know, it, 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 Alberta, it, not unlike a lot of people across the country, there's a lot of frustration about the, the length of the pandemic and people are obviously getting tired of the restrictions. But when it was announced this week that I mean, the restrictions exemption program, the vaccine passport here is officially over, uh, the, the, a lot of restrictions are becoming coming off at the end of the month, including the mask mandate. The mask mandate for kids in schools ends on Monday. That was jarring for a lot of people here and for, for different reasons, for teachers and, and parents. There's a lot of concern about well, what's going to happen in our classrooms with no masks on kids. For businesses, the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, I mean, not a bastion of, you know, the New Democrats, you know, mainly conservative minded are saying, hold on a second, we're not ready for this. And there was absolutely no consultation on this. So there's a lot of frustration that this happened and nobody was asked about, OK, how do you feel about this happening and how do you see this working out? Wait. Right. That can't be what the the reaction that Premier Kenny was hoping for. <laughs> no. And, you know, he knew he knows there was going to be blowback, but there's a lot going on in Premier Kenny's world right now. He says this has nothing to do with pressure from within his own caucus. He's, there's nothing to do with the protests that he sympathizes with. Obviously, he doesn't sympathize with the border closure, but he sympathizes with the message that they have on they're tired of the restrictions. They're tired of the freedoms being limited. He says that's not the case, but look, he has a leadership review coming up in a couple of months, and he has to get people on side on that front. So when you speak to political watchers, they say it, it's, it, the optics here are that he is lessening the restrictions to try and lessen the pressure against him in his own caucus. Last week, there was a, a series of emails leaked out of caucus. We got a hold of them from caucus members saying they were livid that the restrictions exemption program, the vaccine passport, wasn't removed last week. They said, look, that's, that will solve a lot of the problems for them in their constituencies. So there's always politics at play. Well, that's what it sounds like then. So you're saying this is more, this was more directed at his kind of leadership review that's coming up in the people in his own caucus than it was to the general province. Now he says no, like, and, and we should be clear. He says no, that the, the science is changing on this, that Omicron is different than previous waves and that it's time to move forward on this. 
Um, but look, when, when you talk to political watchers, the opposition here say, look, the, the timing can't be ignored on this front. It, it's there is a leadership review coming. People in his own caucus are unhappy. And he has said all along, I mean, it, it's very strange when you see a, a premier institute a program and a government institute a program and, and talk negatively about it right from the very start. Right. Usually the messaging is this is great. This is what we need to do. This is how it has to go. That hasn't been the case here in Alberta. He's he was the last to put in the restrictions exemption program. Now he's the first to remove it. Right. Okay. And so then what are, what are health officials saying? Where is Dr. Hinshaw on this? Yeah. So Dr. Hinshaw, um, we don't know what her recommendations were. Uh, and Premier Jason Kenney took all the questions. When he, was annou- when he announced this, he took all the questions on this front, essentially. Uh, when you speak to emergency room physicians, when you speak to uh, infectious disease specialists, they say, look, we are going to have to get to endemic phase here. But right now in Alberta, there's more than 1,500 people in hospital uh, with COVID-19, more than 100 people in the ICU. Uh, it has been a long two years for healthcare professionals. They're saying they're not ready. They're saying the hospitals are not ready. We're, we're getting there, but they're not ready now. So they're very concerned about what might happen uh, as these restrictions start to get eased. Okay, and what is left to ease then, Tom? Where are things at? Mm-hmm. So right now, the, restrict- the vaccine passport is gone. So that was, that was eliminated effect- effective yesterday morning. Uh, Monday, the mask mandate for kids ends. Uh, and then the next step is uh, March 1st. And we've, we've been told they're watching the metrics. They're, they're, they'll, they'll let us know as we get closer to the beginning of March if we're, going the, uh, if we're moving in the right direction. Now, they've not said what those metrics are, but when that happens, most of the other restrictions will be removed. The, the province-wide mask mandate will be removed. The, the restrictions gatherings, uh, the gathering on restrictions will be removed, that sort of stuff. So largely things will go back to normal. And then there's a, there's a phase three. I don't think there's a date attached to that one. And that would be the remainder of restrictions, things around long-term, uh, long care, uh, long-term care homes and that sort of thing. So uh, it, if things go according to the way the premier uh, lined them out, Things will be pretty normal, back to normal here on March 1st. Now, what he risks, remember the, the best summer ever last summer. Yeah. Uh, everything opened up, cases surged, hospitalizations surged, uh, deaths surged. Um, he runs the risk of this happening again. I mean, we hope it doesn't, but then he w- would have to go back. And politically, the, the, <laughs> it, it, it would basically be very difficult for him to do that. No kidding. All right, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Tom Vernon, Global News Edmonton Provincial Affairs reporter, talking about the situation in Alberta. It is such an interesting one there. So they've done away with their vaccine passport program, but they still have other restrictions that are in place that are gradually going to be removed as long as the hospitalization numbers continue to go down. Now, in BC, our vaccine passport program is not going anywhere. Nobody's talking about that. But our in, um, indoor events and those gatherings restrictions are due to be reviewed, they may get changed early next week because they're set to expire February the 16th. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with, you know, Tom points out that in a couple of weeks, so beginning of March, potentially things in Alberta could be quote unquote back to normal. Are you comfortable with that if that would happen here? It is probably one of our best known cold cases that we have here in British Columbia. It is an ongoing mystery, the cold case known as Babes in the Woods. But now it sounds like there might actually be some progress on this. And once again, it has to do with genetic genealogy, which I know is a a fascinating aspect to true crime that has really come up in the last few years. Joining us now is Eve Lazarus, host of the Cold Case Canada podcast. She's been following this story for years. Eve, welcome back. 
Hi, Fimi. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you on the show, especially talking about this particular case, because I know we've talked about this before. For people who don't remember, tell us about the Babes in the Woods case. Right. Well, it happened, really kicked off in 1953, and it was a parks board worker who was clearing bush in a remote section of Stanley Park, and he stepped on some leaves and he heard a loud crack. And as he started to rake back the leaves, he found a woman's coat, and as he lifted that up, he found a couple of skeletons. Now, he'd called police eventually, and when they got there, there wasn't really anything in the way of crime scene forensics back then, and and basically they brought a cardboard box, they counted the layer of leaves to make a rough guess at when the the children had been murdered, Uh, took a couple of photos, threw the bones and everything into a box, which also included the hatchet, which turned out to be the murder weapon, um, a kid's lunchbox, and and brought everything back to the city morgue. And for some reason, even though it was really difficult to identify sex from skeleton remains, and both were dressed in boys' clothing, the pathologist decided that they're a girl and a boy. And this mistake sent detectives down the wrong track for the next 45 years. Oh, wow. I know. They were searching for a missing brother and sister. And you can imagine all these leads that were phoned in saying, oh, there's two boys gone missing. They said, oh, thanks, but we're not looking for that. You know, <laughs> um, that, that just never happened. And anyway, so it wasn't until 1996 when DNA started to come onto the horizon and um, the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit was formed. And uh, a detective, um, Brian Honeyburn, sort of took it under his wing and was obsessed, you know, with the case as, as a lot of us are. And uh, we managed to submit the boy's teeth to Dr. David Sweet at UBC. And he was able to extract a DNA profile at that time that showed that the kids were actually two boys. And they were half-brothers. So there were two different fathers involved as well. So that's really where it stayed for the next, what are we, 30 years, 20, 25 years. Amazing. Yeah. When you think about that, when everything else that's happened, you know, all the other cases that we can learn about, we read about them everywhere else, but now it sounds like they're actually getting close again. What's happened? Oh, it's just amazing. Um, what happened, the Vancouver Police Department partnered with a lab, uh, Redgrave Research Forensic Services, they're called, out of Massachusetts, that do this kind of work. And you've got to remember, these bones were over 70 years old and there was very little of them left and very difficult to get any kind of profile at all. And um, the science is a bit hard for my science brain at this moment. But <laughs> it's early, I know, it's early. <laughs> but there's all this sort of genome sequencing involved and all these sorts of things that they need to, to get from these skeletal remains before they can upload in GEDmatch. Now, the exciting thing about this, GEDmatch is um, a genealogical database where, you know, you spit in the tube, you send off your DNA to Ancestry or Family and Me or or one of those many sites that analyzes your um, DNA and tells you where you came from and, you know, maybe find that half-sister you never knew you had, that sort of thing. So there's millions of people that have literally done that. And um, back a few years back when they caught the Golden State Killer this way, um, it was um, anyone, anyone, the law enforcement could just search through these millions of profiles to, to look for the killer or family members of the killer. Now, privacy laws have kicked in and you have to opt in, but there's still, I'd say, about a million profiles out there 
that law enforcement can search through. And the idea now with Babes in the Woods, now they've got this profile, is Redgrave have uploaded their DNA into GEDmatch and now are currently searching. And it's not like you just, you know, put in the DNA and out pops a name. It's a huge amount of work. No, you got to build a family tree, right? Oh you have my to, God. and it, that's where the you can get a match. But then you got to find out how is this person related to mm. your victims. Well, you look at the Golden State Killer, which which was an amazing one. When they put his DNA that they'd found from a crime scene in, they got over a thousand possible relatives. And, you know, from there they had to sort of dig down and, and find out, you know, how many of those could be, you know, third cousins and build family trees out for them. And, you know, eventually they got it down to two suspects and ended up following these two guys around. Because, and they traced it down, you know, it's possibilities, they were the, same, the possible age that they could have been the killer and, um, you know, lived in the, the vicinity. So that made sense that it could have been them. So they traced them down, found cast-off DNA, I guess they, you know, look for a cigarette that they've thrown right. out or a coffee cup, and managed to, to get this Joseph D'Angelo in 2018. And he was a former cop. I know. But it like murdered that case, 12 people. That case just is amazing. So oh. they, they have enough DNA here, so they have successfully uploaded uh, their DNA to this, I guess, is now just a waiting game, or do they have a hit, or where are they? They've found cousins, I understand. Now, you know, that doesn't mean it could wow, be though. removed. But, I mean, this is so close. From This is a 70-year-old, over 70-year-old case where these kids were killed. And, you know, we might get their names any day. I, I just find that so exciting. I, I found it so exciting, too, when I saw this, because I thought, after all these years, is this going to make the difference that we could find relatives of these poor kids? Yeah, and it looks like, it looks like well, we have. Uh, apparently, distant relatives anyway, so you know, with any luck, we can sort of close that in. And if they can find the names, if they can find why they're in Vancouver, you know, maybe they can find out who killed them. You know, Eve, the thing that always got me about this case is that I thought, how could two young children just go missing back in the day? And what, nobody noticed? Nobody filed a police report? Nothing happened? Mm. You know, but you're looking at um, post-war time or even during the war, they're not quite sure during the 40s when they were killed. But, you know, it was a horrifically violent time. You know, there was no safety net for women. When I was researching this years ago, I was going through the Vancouver Police Department annual reports, and in 1948, there were three cases of murder-suicides of women that had killed their kids. And, you know, two of the cases, they'd gassed them, you know, and gassed themselves in an oven. And in one case, a woman had thrown her two kids over a bridge and, and then jumped off after them. So this was a really scary time. You know, women had had great jobs during the war and as soon as the men came back, you know, they were back to working in, you know, domestic situations or low-paid retail jobs. And, you know, if they were single mothers, they were also ostracised. So there wasn't a lot of things out for them and it wouldn't surprise me at all, you know, if the mother had killed them in desperation and then just killed herself. Right, and yet haven't been able to put those pieces together hopefully soon. Eve, thank you so much for this update. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, hopefully we'll have you on again soon when we can have more information on this too. So let us know. (laughs) Will do. Okay, thanks, thanks, Eve. Eve Lazarus, host of the Cold Case Canada podcast. If you've never listened, you should. You should definitely check that out. If you love true crime, especially local true crime, that is the podcast for you. With the update on the Babes in the Woods case, and it sounds like they are close to solving that 70-year-old mystery. 2021 was the sixth year of the public health emergency, and it is with tremendous sadness 
that I report that our province is in a worse place than it has ever been in this drug toxicity crisis. That is BC Coroner Lisa LaPointe delivering that very sobering news this week. Uh, and a note here as well that we are going to be speaking with Lisa LaPointe. That is tomorrow on the show, just after the 7.30 news. She had some very interesting notes in the data to talk about here, including how naloxone just isn't as effective as it used to be. We want to talk more with her about what is happening in BC. That conversation is tomorrow morning. Right now, though... Let's talk more about this illicit drug overdose death situation. It is second only to cancer when it comes to shortening the lives of residents to an average age of 44. That means, that just explains why Lisa LaPointe just said that, that old prevention measures are not working. She calls them, quote, an abject and very costly failure. Joining us now to talk more about this is Leslie McBain, co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. Leslie lost her son to opioid addiction. She's told her story here on the show many times. Leslie, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for asking me. I'm glad to be here. Now, Leslie, what did you hear? What did you think when you heard Lisa LaPointe talking about the failure of the current approach? Well, uh, first of all, I was super glad that Lisa is on our side, as it were. She uh, has been a warrior for uh, harm reduction and for better policy for for several years. She and I have stood on the podium together many times. So, um, you know, I'm glad to hear what she has to say. I agree with her. It is uh, unbelievable that we've been in this crisis for so long, and the only change really has been that it's getting worse. You don't see any signs of improvement. We've talked about it, right? We, it seems like all these announcements happen, but you don't see any signs of improvement? No. You know, we do hear these announcements. We hear that things are getting better. There will be more recovery beds. There will be more uh, resources for mental health, for, um, you know, for addiction medicines and counseling. But no one can find it. So, I mean, we have moms who call us and say, my son is on the street and he wants treatment. You know, where is he going to get it? Uh, and we don't know. So, so the navigation part of it just certainly isn't there. Right. And if there are changes, please, please tell us where they are. You know, it's, are we, are we fighting? Are we fighting a, a different kind of war here, too, Leslie? Because what what might have been the case six years ago is, I mean, the drugs have changed, the addictions have changed. Are we even on the same playing field as we were before? Yeah, because we know that the types of the chemicals in these drugs have changed. Oh, I, Lots of things right. have changed here, but we seem to be fighting it the way we've always tried to fight it. Right, and that is the way that we aren't fighting it is by giving us a safe, regulated, legal supply of the drugs that people who are addicted, people who use drugs, that they need. That is the only way. And yes, the the drugs are more toxic, and there may be more drug use. And yes, there's benzodiazepines being put into these uh, illicit black market drugs, uh, which makes naloxone almost ineffective. So, you know, we are fighting a little different war, but the solution is still the same. The solution is safe drugs. How Mob Stop the Harm was founded during all of this happening. Leslie, what has it been like in people coming to you? Are you seeing more and more people call you for help? We, we are having more and more people join us who have lost loved ones. 
that is a sad, sad thing. Although at the same time, we're glad they, you know, we're always glad when they find us because we give support. We give a lot of we have support um, support groups all across the country now. Um, but we do have a lot of parents contacting us and saying, my, you know, my son is on the street my son is or in my backyard and I he he wants help and he wants treatment and I can't find it what can I do that is a common occurrence so it's uh what do you tell them frustrating yeah what do you tell them then in that case well I do my best I just have a person right now who's trying to get off crystal meth she's been giving it her all for for months and she's having a hard time uh she doesn't have the money for a uh, you know, for a for any kind of treatment facility that charges. So I've been trying to find her a bed that will work for her, and I can't find it. You you call places and they say we're filled, or sorry, we don't have capacity, we don't have the staff. We, you know, there's all kinds of reasons, but that person is struggling. So that's a common the common scenario. I think that's frustrating. Yeah, that's frustrating to hear, Leslie, and that here we are six years deeply into this and we still, you don't, there's still in this province not a number you can call that will help you just get help. That's right. Um, I think they're working on it. I mean, I know they're working on it. And when I say they, I mean the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. They're working on navigation. But like you say, we're six years into this. How long does it take? It's not rocket science. It's frustrating to know what can work and, and for, for the government to have more committees and more committees and asking for more research as six to seven people die every single day. It's, it's a tragedy. It's, uh, it's kind of it's unbelievable. It's like the Mad yeah. Hatter's Tea Party sometimes. It really does seem like that. So then, Leslie, what do you think is the single biggest factor that would help? Is it navigation? No, it's safe supply. Safe supply is the, the, the primary goal here is to stop the deaths because dead people can't use any of these services. So the primary goal is to, to push the government, uh, to push them to uh, release, to implement a safe supply in a, in a low barrier, uh, a non-stigmatizing, way many pathways to implant implementing a safe supply and they know what they are and for some reason they just can't get there but safe supply is the answer to the biggest problem right now and that's people dying leslie listen thank you so much for being with us this morning well thank you for asking me that's leslie mcbain co-founder of mom stop the harm she also lost her son to opioid addiction I cannot imagine how frustrating that would be as people calling you for help and you can't get them somewhere. You can't get them help somewhere. Uh, Lisa LaPointe is going to be on with us tomorrow. She is the BC coroner who has done a stellar job in highlighting how devastating this is. She also made the point yesterday of talking about alcohol. You know, when alcohol in the 1920s and the early part of the 20th century was was killing people because of the way it was made and it was, you know, poison and people were still drinking it. They tried outlawing it, didn't work. Essentially, they relied on a safe alcohol alcohol supply. That is, they legalized it. They put regulations in around it. And she's using that example here. Does that work? I don't know. We're going to talk to her about that coming up tomorrow on the show. It is not very often that you can get city councils of different jurisdictions to actually agree on something and take a look at what's happening on the North Shore. Now, if you've driven to or from the North Shore, then you know there is a serious traffic problem there. And now all three municipalities have banded together 
to urge a common goal. What is it? Well, our contributor, Raji Silhal, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, I live on the North Shore and you have been to the North Shore recently and told me what a nightmare you found the bridge to be. But there's also gridlock. Uh, just it's fairly typical just to have gridlock all over the North Shore, West Bend, North Vancouver. And so a solution has long been desired. But what is that? How much is it going to cost? And what exactly would it look like? So the Transit 2050 plan laid out some possibilities. But the problem that everyone on the North Shore has with that plan is the timing because 2050 2050 is way, way too far away. So all three municipalities, like you mentioned, plus the First Nations on the shore are united in a front that they're calling North Shore Connects. And they have reached consensus on the issue and they are urging the TransLink Mayor's Council to prioritize rapid transit on the North Shore. They want to be considered next and they want everything to happen way sooner. So they want to see a Burrard Inlet rapid transit solution within 10 years. Uh, where would it go? There are a few possibilities that are being explored. Here's Mayor of West Vancouver, Marianne Booth. Coming out of work that was done by the province, the North Shore local governments really solidified around a couple that are over the second narrows crossing. Like not necessarily the bridge over the second narrows, the, uh, the waterway there. So more to the east. And there's two, two, two potential alignments uh, on the maps that TransLink has released in their Transport 2050. Yeah. They show up as, I think, a gold alignment and a purple alignment. The study looked at a bunch of factors and ruled out different um, alignments for a number of reasons. Obviously, we're trying to be as efficient, as cost effective, and also have the greatest impact on congestion. And mm-hmm. those two alignments really met those criteria. <laughs> okay. Were there problems seen with Stanley Park? Yes. Yeah. And and yeah, just very much so. Yeah. The Broad Inlet is also has different depths, uh, connections to other uh, regional networks, a, a big factor. And just taking um, vehicles off the road and um, the two alignments that we settled on uh, really took up to 50,000 uh, vehicles per day off of the bridges. Yeah, Simi, 50 vehicles off the bridges is a day is very substantial, but a lot of this is dependent on the technology that's available. And and technology changes in transportation are happening very rapidly, even in a span of 10 years. And so sometimes people will hear uh, the term rapid bus and they'll think, okay, like just a bus that goes fast. But actually, a lot of those designs um, are that are coming out now these days, they're, they're state of the art. So like in Brisbane, for example, um, their rapid bus, it actually looks more like a train and it operates on its own track. And it's highly efficient, a very good way to get around. So they want to look at the technology and that will in great part determine uh, where exactly these, these uh, lines would be set up. The whole point is to make taking transit as competitive with other modes. So uh, convenient, safe, accessible, uh, speed, obviously. So we're, again, still in the very preliminary planning stages. The key thing here is, um, you know, we've identified that the North Shore should be next. We're the only Um, major um, area in metro that hasn't had access to rapid transit. And then um, the whole um, 
point is that we get it on the radar uh, or in the plan of the Mayor's Council at TransLink, both in terms of the vision, the 10-year vision, and then, of course, the 10-year investment plan. So that's the dollars, but getting everyone solidified around this. And we've had, we've had good support. Um, Burnaby has, uh, has supported us at their council. And, of course, the, the unique partnership that we have on the North Shore of the five local governments. Okay, that is so interesting to me, Raji, because I mean, thinking back, I remember when there was a rapid bus line that was discussed for the North Shore, all three communities, and they said no, the communities that had protests and everything. Yeah, now there's overwhelming support. Uh, it's from residents, it's from commuters. It, you know, we just got the census data that shows that Metro Vancouver is booming. And so it's inevitable that people finally agree that, yes, we need to have this um, in our backyard. Now, the problem is, uh, okay, the support's there, but money. We They have no idea how many billions of dollars are going to have to go into this. They do know that every single level of government would have to be involved in that. And this is not some minor uh, disruption to implement new infrastructure for rapid transit. It would be major. We heard Marianne Booth there, the mayor of West Vancouver, talking about how uh, Stanley Park, for example, and, and doing something along Lionsgate Bridge, just it, it's an impossibility because of the challenge of being you know, right there on the water there. Um, and Stanley Park, um, is its whole ridge, it's, we, we wouldn't want to destruct any part of that. So uh, this is coming. It has to come, but now it's just a matter of timing. Now, 10 years will go by in a zip. I don't know how much headway they're going to make on that as a goal, 10 years, but certainly um, the other municipalities are paying attention now to what the North Shore needs are in terms of rapid transit. But rapid transit doesn't always um, work uh, the way that people hope it does. I mean, we look uh, at Port Moody and Port Moody was promised so much more of a, a boom that would come with SkyTrain and it just it didn't happen in that way. Right. But I think in the North Shore isn't the key getting some of those cars off the road, because if one thing yes. goes wrong, I feel like uh, in traffic on the North Shore, that's it. It's a tie up. You're, you're done at that point. Oh, absolutely. I've been in situations where uh, I, I left myself the extra buffer of time, the extra 15 minutes or 20 minutes, but it turned out I needed an extra two hours of time to get across the bridge. So things are pretty dire with traffic and congestion right now. And people mention the environment. It's also the economy. Uh, there are a lot of workers that commute to North Van or leave North Van to work elsewhere. So it's kind of hitting every sector of life on the North Shore now. And do you get that sense from like your neighbors and people in the community that they might have been upset about this protesting rapid bus, you know, years back? That's not the case anymore? I do get that sense now. I get the sense that people need to get around more efficiently and that they're opening their minds to this. I'm also seeing people that I, I heard say, you know, I don't want more housing in my neighborhood um, get on board too. And it's through conversations like this, like the one we're having now, where people become a little bit more warm to these ideas. Things are changing. BC is booming and all of our cities are too. All right, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm going to watch this one with great interest. Raji, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Simi.